Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series dedicated to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a variety of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches. And we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. Hello and welcome to season seven. For those who are tuning in for the first time, each of our seasons comprise a fall or spring semester at SLU, and we break between each season for winter or summer vacation. We've got a really interesting lineup of episodes this semester that address some new topics or double back to build on previous conversations from past episodes. I also want to announce that in an effort to make our podcast more accessible, we're going to be offering transcripts to our episodes. They might not always be released simultaneously when the episode drops, but within a few days you should be able to read an edited transcript for each episode at eloquentiaexmachina.com. We're also working to provide transcripts for past episodes so that you can read through our back archive. Our first episode of Season 7 will take on a slightly different format. Instead of, as usual, having one or two guests around a table, physically or metaphorically, <laughs> I had a series of mini chats with a few different instructors about particular courses, lesson plans, or research projects in which space and rhetoric intersect. Now that SLU is back to holding almost all classes entirely in person, I've been thinking a lot about space. Not just my own process of relearning how to teach in person without the virtual extension of Zoom breakout rooms, or thinking about how the last year and a half has reoriented all of our relationships to space, but also the way that I often ask my students to understand a discourse community or place themselves within a scholarly discussion using spatial terminology. In that vein, I've asked some SLU instructors to talk to me about their own interests in space. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring the space of performance, viral space, the space of the page, and the act of mapping space. You might also notice that these conversations are all recorded in different kinds of spaces. One in our recording studio, which we dusted off for the semester, one virtually overcast, and one using the lab field recording kit in Adorsion Hall. All right, let's go. I first spoke to Jonathan Sade, professor of English and Walter J. Ong, SJ, chair in the humanities here at SLU, about his course, The Space of the Page. Um, but the course comes out of a project that I've been working on for quite a long time, which is about empty space, blank mm -hmm. space, areas of not just pages, but areas of our experience which are seemingly devoid of content in various mm -hmm. ways. And the philosophy, which is you know, a rather grand way of putting it, but the philosophy behind the course is that the page is a very strange object. Mm -hmm. It's much stranger than we think. I mean, we think we're sort of surrounded by print, uh, we're surrounded by script, we think we know what pages are, and by and large that's true. And yet there are a whole set of sort of, if you like, historical questions that come out of thinking about spaces containing script, mm -hmm. which indicate that pages are very unstable and have been in the past very unstable. So to give you a few examples, we think of pages as being composed, being one side of a leaf, mm -hmm. which is usually composed out of paper in the pre-modern world, in the early modern world, that might actually not be paper, it could be parchment, it could be vellum, so it could be animal skins, scripts written on organic materials. But, but prior to that, if we start going backwards in time, we have different, <coughs> sorry, we have different kinds of, different forms of pages. You go back all the way to classical antiquity, 
and the page as such, which is a single side of a leaf, mm -hmm. the page as such didn't exist in the same way. So we had scrolls, we had, we had continuous, if you like, materials on which script was incised. Go even further back and pages begin to take on different dimensions, even three dimensions. So the earliest, earliest forms of writing that we have were inscribed on clay tablets, wet clay tablets that, that were baked in the sun to reuse a writing surface. And once you start thinking about writing surfaces, then you're thinking about pages begins to shift rather. So writing surfaces could be anything. They could be clothes, or they could be the skin, the human skin. They could be objects found in the world. They could be three-dimensional objects. They could be made of different materials. My interest is primarily in Renaissance, 16th and 17th century writing, and there were a whole array of surfaces that we find in that period in which we also find script. So walls, door frames, um, windows even. And one of the great Renaissance poems by John Donne uh, describes the cutting of a, of a name into a, into a pane of glass using a, a piece of diamond. Scribes, people writing, don't necessarily think of paper as the natural place in which to put script because you can think of buildings containing script. St Louis is very, very rich in, in what I come to think of as scripted space. Mm -hmm. um, if you wander around downtown St Louis, all those federal buildings, the Opera House, whatever it's now called, I think it's got a different name, isn't it? But anyway, it's, it's quite remarkable um, how many of these buildings contain quite dense loads or quite dense patches of script in various mm -hmm. forms, inscription. And that, of course, is, a, you know, again, a very ancient form of, of, of thinking about communicating messages using the building, if you like, as a kind of, almost as a sort of a version of a page. Mm -hmm. And what the course is trying to do, take them both through sort of the history of pages. Mm -hmm. So thinking about why, for example, a page printed, a page printed in the 16th century, it might look so different from a 19th century page or a 20th century page. What are the conventions in play? But there's another kind of whole dimension to this, which is which is to try to, and this was one of the things that the course was, I think, was great fun actually, teaching and learning from the students. One of the things I wanted them to do was to gather their own pages and to produce a, a portfolio mm -hmm. of pages. So these were pages which could come from anywhere. Mm -hmm. These are pages, okay, if they were using printed books, pages that they found particularly intriguing or interesting for one, one reason or another. So quite a number of the students produced pages taken from children's books, either modern, contemporary, or 19th century, mm -hmm. where the kind of space of the page is really challenged because it becomes much more three-dimensional. I'm thinking of things I'm sure you're familiar with, pop-up books. Uh -huh. But these are things that clearly appeal to children, but they're also sort of stick in our own imaginations right. in various ways. And then we were thinking about pages in a completely different way. We were thinking about, if you like, urban space mm -hmm. as consisting of pages. So, you know, you look out on the road. Actually, I'm sitting in my office here in the Dorjan, and, and there aren't many. Well, there are no, I can read from where I am here. I can see at least five, six different examples of script going on out there. But if you mm -hmm. think of a, a city street cluttered with signs, it's a semiotic system, and those signs have to be obeyed. That's, again, a relatively recent 
a recent phenomenon. There's a wonderful, there's a wonderful film that I often have shown students when thinking about sort of more broadly about technology, and it's a film that was shot in San Francisco about a week before the San Francisco earthquake. And you'll have to remind me the date. I've suddenly blanked it out. What so they... fourth week, I believe it was nineteen. Was it nineteen oh eight? Nineteen oh eight. We'll have to check. We'll have to yeah. check that up. We'll have to Oof. check that up. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the so, 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 so. <laughs> update slash fact check. The film was actually shot in 1906, right before the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. So I was off by two years. In my defense, my historical specialty is the 16th century. So it's a film that was made from a trolley bus going down Market Street in San Francisco and um, about 10, 11 minutes long. So it's a very early movie and it just shoots the progress uh, as you were, you're the viewer going down a street in San Francisco, a very busy street in San Francisco in 19, 19 whatever date we choose, early 1908, 20th century, early 20th century. <laughs> and what's remarkable about it is that there is no script. I mean, mm -hmm. there is script, there is script all around in some form of advertising hoardings, in the form of, you know, shop fronts, storefronts, and so on and so on. But the, but the, the street itself is devoid of script, of script. There are no, mm -hmm. there are no lines, there are no symbols, there are no stop signs, there are no traffic lights, there are no yields. And, there are no conventions even of driving on the left or the right. So what you see is this kind of what seems like a completely chaotic you know, the progress of traffic, which is early automobiles, but also horse-drawn vehicles, pedestrians. And they're all interacting perfectly happily. Hmm. They're all interacting without the least form of disruption. It looks to us from the late 20 or from the 21st century, it looks completely dangerous and terrifying. <laughs> but obviously people are coping. Right. So that, that gets you thinking about the notion of script in the cityscape and the way in which script operates to control behaviour, mm -hmm. to enforce rules and regulations. And so that was another thing that I wanted the students to, to think about and to bring me or to, to gather together sort of examples of what I came to think of as scripted space. Mm -hmm. uh, spaces where you might not, well, spaces where you'd find script, which you would have to kind of, you know, abide by in, in various ways, but also script found in unusual places. Mm -hmm. And this was, I think, uh, the most interesting part of the whole, the whole rhetoric of the thing, or the rhetoric of the page, it's been called, in that the students were gathering together some of the most amazing examples of, well, graffiti is one way of, of oh, yeah. telling it, but really it goes beyond graffiti. It goes, it goes into, because you think of graffiti as an insertion, of, of an um, annotation, right? Of, annotation. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's an annotation. It's buildings annotated, but not authorized. That's the mm -hmm. kind of major thing, and it's often, of course, very, very ephemeral. But they were finding examples of not, not, not in downtown St. Louis, but also actually on the campus, on the university campus, and in buildings on the campus, of texts that you would not expect to find in strange places. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, oh, well, they're going to find loads of, like, they'll go into the restrooms and they'll find loads of kind of you know, obscene graffiti or something like that. But actually what they were finding was poems, um, kind of strange little quirky, I don't know, almost kind of, I'm trying to think what the, what the equivalent word would be in, in 16th or 17th, elegies, epitaphs, mm -hmm. small marks of sort of graffiti, where they the writer, and of course the writer's anonymous, is writing for an audience that they'll never meet, that they'll never have any knowledge of. And, and you know, you, you ended up, or they, the students, ended up speculating rather interestingly about, so, you know, what, what's going on, what, what's behind this? How do we interpret these kind of 
found texts right. in, uh, in three-dimensional space. They were also bringing examples of kind of strange inscriptions that they'd encountered on their travels uh, long before they'd taken the course. Maybe because they were taking this course, there were sorts of people who were interested in this kind of stuff. But I was very, very struck by the number of examples they found from Central America, from mm. Scotland, from France, of texts of various different forms in spaces that you would not normally think of think of texts. So yeah, that was that was and, and still is the, the, the sort of the space of the page. So it's a kind of it, it's a kind of history of reading, mm -hmm. but it's a history of reading that tries to go beyond, as it were, the book. Right. And the final parts of the of the course, and this was again something I was encouraging the students to discover themselves, were pages or collections or gatherings of pages which kind of challenge our very idea of the page. So mm -hmm. um, pages that have been purposefully incised or ripped or mm -hmm. torn or books made up of entirely blank space. You'd be mm -hmm. amazed at how many books are actually out there that have no words in them whatsoever, but they form a sort of symbolic function or pro provide a kind of symbolic function. And it is with that full circle back to the blank space of the page that I will leave my conversation with Jonathan. My thanks for his participation in this first episode of the season. I managed not to make a Taylor Swift blank space joke since I have learned that this is a firm Lana Del Rey department. In keeping with our current focus on early modern England, I next spoke to Joe Rowe, a graduate student in the English department and a staff member at the Compass Lab. Joe's dissertation focuses on the embodied sensory experiences of early modern playgoers, who were frequently dealing with their own theater closures and public health measures due to plague. We chatted about the difference between live and virtual theater, and the literal and metaphorical contagious qualities of the theater space. Joe and I are going to be a little muffled in this recording since we were still experimenting with recording in the studio while wearing masks, so please bear with us. And I was particularly struck by the ways in which um, early modern audiences, as you, as you write so beautifully in your project, right, early modern audiences were both particularly attuned to the theater as a, a social space uh, in terms of what we would now call kind of virology, right, mm -hmm. or the concern, right, that theater was a place for the spread of plague at the time, since theaters were shut down quite often. But also, in your project, you talk a lot about anti-theatrical polemics that often describe the act of engaging with theater as itself as a kind of virus, right? As something that is going to slip into people's eyes or ears and kind of take root in their bodies, yes. like a kind of immoral virus. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could, could talk a little bit about the ways in which those those anti-theatrical polemicists conceived of theater as that kind of uh, viral space. Oh yeah, sure. So yeah, plague thing plays definitely an important role in my dissertation because because I'm focusing on like early modern audiences' susceptibility, as you said, to physical contagion in theater space, but also like you just said, like anti-theatricalists consider the idea of theater itself as more contagion as well. So I think um, at the time, theater and plague appeared as kind of mutually exclusive because there's definitely a high risk, high risk of disease transmission. And even though there's very strong regulations of quarantine, like something like facial mask, using handkerchief, but still audiences already aware of how 
dangerous it is to be in the space. So I'm very interested in like why they still wanted to go in the dearest place because it's very, I think it's very similar to like our situation like during the COVID. After that closure, people really eager to go somewhere, some like public place more and more. Um, so I'm very interested in like why and what kind of like experience they need to have after this long isolations and everything. Right, right. So thinking about the importance not just of having a live audience, but that live audience being able to clock each other's responses. Yes. And uh, be able to situate themselves in their reactions yes. um, with or against different audience members. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I've been thinking lately about acoustics. I will spare you my extremely long tangent about theater acoustics, but our conversation wandered, as it often does, to the 2014 Globe Theater production of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus which famously caused uh, over a hundred audience members in London to faint, allegedly because of the particularly brutal staging of the violence within the play. The situation is, of course, a little bit more complicated than that. For example, the front of house reports at the Globe reveal that other sensory factors were to blame in the theater. The incense used in the production, for example, caused uh, several asthmatic reactions, while the barbecue stands positioned outside the theater doors caused intense nausea. Those familiar with Titus Andronicus will understand why. Titus Andronicus. Yeah, 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 that um, people are just like fainted, not because of it's like so violent, Oh, it's because of the barbecue smoke and like right. gunpowders. <laughs> so it could be just like they just um their reactions might might not always because of the play itself, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not about the reaction to like some really sad scenes, and it's not about what they're watching. It's more about like what they're doing in inside of the space. So yeah, now I'm very interested in that, but. As you know, it's so difficult to gather that kind of like record, mm-hmm. like of like you know, you you suggest me to like see the house report and everything. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult to just like gather the information of the only modern like right. that playhouse. And Alas, everything. there were no front of house reports in 1593. Yeah, that's <laughs> that true. we yeah. still have access to at least. Yeah, so that is maybe like the biggest challenge of my um dissertation mm-hmm. and I'm of course I'm so interested in my like Shakespeare's like plays itself too but I just really want to um investigate the interactions between the plays and audience what like audiences experiences mm-hmm. self- absolutely mm-hmm. yeah I think of the ways it, as you said the digital um, or kind of live streamed versions of a lot of these plays intentionally add editorial intervention Mm -hmm. in order to get you the best view of a particular element of the stage or a particular character's reaction. I think the tagline for the Drama Online collection is like, it's the quote unquote, the best seat in the house. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's better, right? It's not, it's not even the best seat in the house. You're constantly changing where you are. Mm -hmm. Right. So it is a a, uh, conglomeration, right, of all of the best perspectives. But with that is the judgment of the editor of, what should you be looking at, right? What should you be paying attention to in this scene and not the kind of messiness of, you know, there's a child who is uh, crying next to me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I can smell popcorn, right? All of the kind of messy intersectional things Mm -hmm. that happen in a theater space. Uh, But I love that messiness. (laughs) I think part of the messiness is, uh, it is in itself worth study in the ways in which it shapes uh, 
shapes the experience of watching a play or remembering a play yes. or engaging with a play. Yes. And while it's really important to have those digital collections as a, an area of access, especially since theater has traditionally been mm-hmm. not particularly accessible for large uh, for large categories of people, it also absolutely eliminates right that element yes. when you're able to watch and engage with selected areas of the performance rather than letting your eye kind of wander <laughs> yeah that's true or kind yeah. of getting distracted sometimes that distraction is really crucial <laughs> mm-hmm. that's very crucial yeah as i think uh, arto or like brecht also said like mm-hmm. you shouldn't be like tuned into the, what happened in play mm-hmm. you have to be a somewhat distance from the play to mm-hmm. have some more critical thinking or even like arto said like some that power of contagious theater is mm-hmm. The fact that it can shake your body uh-huh. and like disturbing the senses, which almost forcefully like open up some your rational mind into mm-hmm. something else, like building something new. So that is only happening in the theater space, not like you're just watching some very refined version of editing edited some videos or something like right. that yeah so. well thank you so much joe <laughs> no, thank for you talking with me about the the space of the theater my last interview for this episode is with nathaniel rivers associate professor of english current head of the writing program friend slash founder of the pod and former director of the compass lab Nathaniel and I chatted a bit about a project for his ongoing English 3850 class that asked students to map a campus space or issue here at SLU. It's a class that begins to complicate the things that we ask students to do in a class like 1900, where in 1900, they're asked to kind of think about audience, think about context, but in many ways, those are kind of scaffolded by the class. So that the students are, that, that's kind of the, the work that we provide for them. We presume that there's an audience out there that they then have to figure out how to engage. Whereas persuasive writing tries to think about scaffold. Right. Yeah. Like where does that scene come from to begin with? Mm -hmm. And to think about how persuasion can be untangled from something like argument, that Mm -hmm. argument is one way in which, and it's a traditional way in which we engage in persuasion. But there's all sorts of ways in which persuasion is happening, you know, culturally, spatially, technologically, you know, some of the things I think that are there in 1900, but they're, they're more explicit in a class like 3850. Mm-hmm. And so thinking of persuasion as not reducible to particular argumentative forms or particular kinds of scenes, that persuasion is way more distributed and dispersed. Okay. And so is that mapping project then thinking about kind of how students can find those different scenes? Yes. There's a way actually in which, so in in the past, I had them start with a project where they rewrote something at SLU. They picked Mm -hmm. some text or some arrangement and then refigured it. And then the second project was the mapping project where they mapped some issue on campus or some procedure on campus, right? So students could map Oh, I can't think of a, you know, I mean, one student actually just mapped, how does one go about getting a student organization approved? And then some did more social issues on campus, right? That what are Mm -hmm. access to resources or things like that. And, and this time is the first time I flipped it where the mapping project comes first, and then they do the rewrite project, which I now refer to as a medium uh, redesign Mm -hmm. project. And of course, what I realized, which I've done is I'm now echoing the disologoi to multimodal 
project in 1900. That essentially right. what the mapping project is, is it's the multimodal a way... project in a way almost before the disoilogoi. <laughs> yeah, that it's 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 a disoilogoi that's that's thicker, right? There's more layers mm -hmm. into it. Um, that not only mapping various perspectives, but thinking about how those perspectives are built into a particular um, spatial arrangement or social arrangement. So the mapping project is the students mm -hmm. pick some issue, and again, that issue actually isn't. Sometimes at this at this stage, actually, in the class, the students are struggling. This I don't quite know what my issue is yet, and I'm like, well, yeah, you haven't done the mapping project yet. You you won't know what your issue is until you do the mapping project. And so, you know, I have I have students that are doing things about where where students of color feel most comfortable on campus, access to particular kinds of. I'm trying to think of examples now. Other other examples. I'm, I'm just going through these. Right, how various buildings on campus reflect um, a potential hierarchy of majors. Mm -hmm. So how do students understand their major relative to where they find themselves on campus and what those spaces mm -hmm. look like? Right, um, which, which workspaces or social spaces are reserved for which academic uh, groups or echelons? Precisely, right. I, I know a student's interested in where certain kinds of students study and how study spaces are built with particular kinds of study habits in mind. Mm -hmm. And so are, are all kinds of student study habits reflected on campus. And so the map is a sense to give them a building a scene, right? Making, mm -hmm. <laughs> making a scene, actually, that's now a, a pun <laughs> I hadn't thought about until just now. And that map can take any number of forms. So it can be a, I mean, I had one student map that was, that was essentially, this was years ago was essentially mapping student attitudes about places on campus and then did it as a Lord of the Rings style map and then renamed all the buildings on campus. So part of his research was polling students about what they felt about certain buildings on campus and then tried to map those feelings, right? So where were the, you know, where was the, where was Mordor, right, on campus? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, what was that? And so students would do things like that because the map is also what I'm also trying to get them to think through is the way in which the map is itself a kind of persuasive document, right? That the map is, the map generates particular perspectives on a space. Absolutely. In the assignment sheet, right? That it's not the mirroring of reality, right? But it's helping cultivate our understanding of reality or meaning and matter. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's again getting to think about that that the process of mapping is persuasive, even though it's not taking a kind of explicit argumentative form, and that there really would be no mapping that wasn't that wasn't creative or mm -hmm. or cultivating or something like that. So in many ways too, it's we do a whole thing in class where where I point out that obviously accuracy is an important criteria for maps, but then I show them you know twenty different election maps that right. are broken up by county, by population density, right? They're all accurate. So now which one do you decide to go with? And you're going to have to have a more sophisticated criteria other than which one is the most faithful or accurate or truthful, because that's, mm -hmm. they're all, they're all in the sense, right? They're not, they're not making up the election results, right? That they have mapped those. It's just, they map election results on side, alongside other demographic information or 
something like that. So so getting them to think that just because their map is accurate, that there's there's other hurdles that maps have to clear. Absolutely. No, that just reminds me, I was just teaching Thomas More's Utopia in my Utopian and Dystopian sci-fi lit class. And um, there's always a conversation around like, well, this isn't a piece of literature, right? This is just a kind of narrative map. He's just telling us, you know, uh, this yeah. is a, a literary exercise in SimCity. And <laughs> it's always really interesting to see. Uh, I get a lot of interesting roller coaster tycoon references as well. Those have probably petered out. But yeah, this idea of what kind of persuasive elements a narrative map can take mm -hmm. in both kind of its visual form and um, in, a, in a story in which you are just yeah walking through right the organization of a real or fictional city and getting students to think about about that I have them read at the beginning of the semester it's it's something I sometimes assigned in 1900 but it's an article by Jim Corder called argument as emergence rhetoric as love mm -hmm. and the the argument he makes there is that argument is itself not something that we present or display, but it's something that we are in so mm -hmm. far as we are a narrative, right? We have a sense of ourselves that includes some things and not others. And so we're constantly sort of emerging as arguments, as opposed to using arguments simply as a, as a means of conveyance or a broadcast medium, right? That there's that mm -hmm. argument is linked to identity through narrative and history. And so I try to then use similar language to think about a map as a kind of narrative, right? It, it creates a place by deciding what goes in it and what doesn't, right? So you'll have a map that's purely topographical or a map that has street names um, mm -hmm. or, or maps that provide color that maps onto um, geographical features, right? So mm -hmm. all those maps are, they're all accurate, but they're all including different things for different purposes. And to also get them to not, I think sometimes something that's easy for our students to do is to get very quickly cynical about that, uh -huh. right? So then their response is, well, like, well, all maps are biased. I'm like, well, yeah, but that doesn't, right? They, they can't help but be. Right. Yes. Right? Like you say <laughs> that I give you directions to get to my house. You could, you could accuse me of bias. Well, I can't use these directions to get to somebody else's house. Well, well, you're right, but bias seems to, right, that there's something nefarious behind a map that's making choices which for me ignores the fact that you, you could find no map, right? I've looked at lots of maps that are super accurate. I've never seen a tiny me on the map, right? And, right. and I'm there, I'm, I'm at the intersection of this street. I'm not on the map. The map is, has left me out. Well, right, the map would be incomprehensible if it included everything. Yeah, no, it, it reminds me, I was also just having a similar argument about evaluating and assessing sources. And, and I think this really ties well with what we do in the Disoy Logoi in English 1900, mm -hmm. that thinking about evaluating a source, right, in terms of a, a reliable repository for certain kinds of facts is not the same as assessing it for utility in your project. You know, I yes. talked about kind of going on, you know, Reddit spaces for my own dissertation research and was like, is that a, is that a reputable resource? Absolutely not. Was it telling me something very important um, about yeah. how a group of people were experiencing or responding um, and thus a very important repository of information? Yes, of course. And I think yeah. oftentimes it, it is that kind of binary model of like, well, what do you mean I can't trust it, right? If it's not objective, then what can it do for me. <laughs> well, it, and it's interesting that you mentioned that too, because primary research is, I'm about to introduce primary versus secondary research to my students because the mapping project, because they're looking at something local to SLU typically, 
Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are some exceptions that, that students want to explore, but that a big part of their mapping project is primary research, right? Going out. I mean, we mm -hmm. just we just spent Monday talking about the lab um, mm -hmm. and the and the things that are in the lab. But I was trying to make the distinction as I mean, as you and I have discussed, right? These are there's things in the lab you can use, even if you're not going to ultimately make a audio based production or a video based right. production. You can be using the microphone or the drone as a research tool, right? Right. If you're, if you're trying to get it, so you may not be making a video, but that doesn't mean that a drone might be helpful if you're trying to map the spatial relationship of various things in and around campus right. or using Absolutely. the audio to do interviews with people. So getting them to think about primary research, which is, again, I think students will sometimes, well, all I'm just getting are people's opinions. Like, well, yeah, but that's, but that's your map. If you're trying to map how students feel about a particular location. So I, I also right. like it for that too, because it's, it's, and that we introduce a little bit in the logo, right? As you're talking about with Reddit, right? Mm -hmm. If you're actually trying to understand what Redditors are saying, then it is actually a very good and reliable source, you know, particularly depending on what kind of, the kind of thing a student's doing with their logo. Right. They may not be able to find certain perspectives represented in certain kinds of right that in many ways the criteria Absolutely. to go and get peer-reviewed research already puts the thumb on the scale in terms of the disologoi absolutely yes yeah if, if they if they are only relying on peer-reviewed articles right that have been published in the last 25 years um and that are right. currently out then that's actually limiting the kind of information they might be able to get yeah. even if it is a a reputable repository of information um it isn't necessarily going to give you a complete right discursive map um, that it's going yeah. to leave out kind of key parts. Um, and that is not to say that those elements of the map um, are may may not be factually correct, right? But they are kind of a, a discursive space, right? That needs mapping. And this is, I think, what's particularly compelling in terms of its relationship to the multimodal project and the lab is we have them do some readings about maps as issues of technique and technology. So mm -hmm. I, I'm going to have them read a piece about um, it's a, a really interesting essay arguing that we should change Louisiana's road signs so that the, the boot doesn't look like a boot anymore, so that it more accurately reflects coastal erosion and things like that, right? So it kind really of, interesting. because Louisiana, right? But, but of course, what's interesting is it isn't simply a cultural or, per, or perspectival issue. It's a mm -hmm. cartographic issue, which is how do you map intertidal zones? where right. they're sometimes dry and sometimes wet? Right. Or how do you parse the difference between whether land is not underwater, but it's still not walkable or inhabitable? Right. And so, because my students often will then go the step, okay, so maps are what we decide to make of them. And I, and I basically said, well, who's we? Because right. some of these are actually going to be technical issues or definitional mm -hmm. issues. Like, let's right. say you wanted to make a map that captured erosion or sea level change of Louisiana, but you still wanted to make it a static representation. Right. Well, you're going to run into technical, logistical issues there that are going to then complicate your cultural or social commitments or goals to that, too. So I, I kind of also like that, that it points out that, that the map is also a process. The mapping process itself is not simply reducible to something like culture or ideology, 
but there are actually mm -hmm. kind of mediated technical or technique choices that are involved in it where there, there are limits of what a map can do and those limits then also they're they, they change the way that we can think about a particular thing so it's just introducing more complications to students because they they'll they'll want to reduce a map to a a human's purely ideological bias without recognizing that that there's other other issues at play relative to what the map is trying to do i mean we we do the classic thing where you look at like a mercator projection map that makes ah, greenland yes. huge <laughs> and africa very small and and right and there's there's the cartographers a, a very, for social equality <laughs> right oh god that i you know although in many ways i i would show that scene and give them as much trouble as i right. would give right because they still fall back on this is where you've been living this whole time well mm -hmm. no right i mean if i fly over the earth in a hot air balloon the countries aren't going to change color underneath me mm -hmm. right they're not going to have place names written on them you know i mean even those basic kinds of things but right but in part the the Mercator projection is is problematic for all sorts of reasons, many of which can be traced to actual cultural biases we could point to. But also, if you try to take a circle and put a square on it, right. it's going to distort things, right? That in many ways, you're trying to make a, a globe because the earth is round, but the systems that we use to navigate are Cartesian and square. Right. And so it isn't simply that Mercator wanted to put Europe in the middle of the world. He did, but he's also trying to square a circle. You know, that's where you end up with all these. paper that we can roll up and bring with us. Right, right. And it has to be waterproof. And you have to make clocks that don't get affected by seawater. Right. All these things that affect mm -hmm. mapping that are that are things that we're doing in conjunction with technology. To quote the classic 1996 film that inspired the title of today's episode, that's all, folks. Thank you to all of our guests for taking the time to talk with me and tune in two weeks from today to hear our next episode, a roundtable on composing for advocacy networks on social media. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.